Welcome to California Women Lawyers Seat at the Table podcast. I am your host, Summer C. Selleck, joined today by my lovely and pregnant co-host, Ariel Brownell-Lee, and our guest, Judge Victoria Kolakowski. Ariel, would you like to get the listeners acquainted with our speaker today? Absolutely, Summer. Judge Victoria Kolakowski became the first and only openly transgender trial judge in the United States when she was elected to the Alameda County Superior Court in November 2010. As a judge, she has served in both civil and criminal trial assignments. She recently completed a year as a supervising judge of the collaborative courts with subject matter oversight over all of the treatment courts, including drugs, behavioral health, veterans, and more in Alameda County. Judge Kulikowski is also passionate about ensuring and expanding access to justice, particularly for those with limited resources. She serves on the Judicial Council of California's Advisory Committee on Providing Access and Fairness and is the California Council of Churches appointee to the California Commission on Access to Justice. She has been a leader in educating the judiciary on transgender issues. She's also a frequent speaker on LGBT issues internationally, nationally, and locally. For example, Judge Kolakowski conducted a series of four video conferences in June 2017 with LGBT and allied civil rights leaders hosted at U.S. consulates in India at the request of the U.S. Department of State. Judge Kolakowski is a former president of the International Association of LGBT Judges and of the Earl Warren American Inns of Court chapter in Alameda County. Judge Kolakowski was an attorney for 21 years in Louisiana and California, serving as a sole practitioner attorney in a small firm as general counsel for a publicly traded company and a senior government utility regulatory attorney, and as an administrative law judge for two different California agencies. Since coming out publicly in 1989, she has been a leader in numerous local, state, and national LGBT legal, political, and spiritual organizations. Her many accomplishments include co-authoring Berkeley, California's Domestic Partner Public Relations Ordinance in 1991, and co-chairing the Board of Directors of the Transgender Law Clinic, an organization focused on the well-being and protection of transgendered individuals. She has received numerous awards, including the Pioneer in the Law Award from California Women Lawyers in 2014 and the Distinguished Service Award from the Alameda County Bar Association in 2015. She was a community grand marshal for San Francisco Pride in 2011 and marched with bailiff, the local LGBT Bar Association. Judge Kolakowski is being honored by the California State Assembly in March as the 2019 Woman of the Year for the 18th Assembly District. She lives in Oakland, California with her wife, Cynthia Laird, their Pembroke Welsh Corgi Derby, and their cat, Espresso. Welcome, Judge Kolakowski. We're very excited to have you. Talk about your experience, you know, what it was like in law school, what it was like after law attorney, when you were elected to the bench, and all of that weaving in your life's experiences thinking about how I got here. It's been kind of an interesting path, and also it's been interesting because I I am very unlike a lot of other people in many ways. Um, I don't come from a family of attorneys. I am actually the first person in my family to graduate from college. And so that was... Uh, so, uh, you know, this question about when did I know I wanted to be a lawyer and all those sorts of things, it's really kind of interesting because when I started out, I didn't know. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer before I knew what a lawyer was. And, I mean, I knew I wanted to be one of those, pe- you know, one of those lawyers because lawyers were people who um, were the ones who stood up for people and uh, protected people. And... Um, I guess I was thinking about that earlier uh, when I was when I was a little kid growing up. I I was a little kid when uh, the civil rights movement was going on, and when I wa- I watched from a distance as um, people like Martin Luther King Jr. and um, I was too young to remember the f- the first you know John Kennedy, but I remember Bobby Kennedy's assassination. I was a little kid at the time, and so. Um, and these were things that very much affected me. And, and the idea that one of the things I wanted to do with my life was bring about um, positive change in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, and I knew that politicians did that, and I knew that lawyers did that. And I knew that lots of politicians were lawyers, and so I figured lawyer would be a good path to go down. But I was um, really good at math and science. And so 
I went down that path uh, because, well, it just seemed like I was supposed to be because I was really good at it and smart, and that was what people like me were supposed to do. And I've had this... So when I, when I started off in college, I started out actually saying I'm going to be I'm, I'm planning to go to law school, and I'm going to major in physics and math and economics, and which is how I started out. And then the economists say, no, you really can't do that. You got if you want to be with us, you got to stick with us. And so I dropped the economics part. And the mathematicians were saying, well, you know, you can do all the things you want just by being a mathematician, but that seemed too theoretical for me. So I stuck with the physics, and then I dropped the phys physics entirely, and I went with um, an interdisciplinary natural sciences and wound up becoming an engineer. Um, going to graduate school, doing bi for biomedical engineering, which is um, uh, which was I thought, well, I would help you know the lame walk and the blind see, and that seemed like a really good way to be <coughs> help people and be kind of a techie person too. And so I uh, I made up for all of the generations of my family not getting degrees by picking up lots of them. I don't think I, I don't know if I put them all in the in the list. No, you didn't. No. But I actually Wikipedia you, and so I saw the biomedical engineering, and I was like. How did you get to law I, school? I have five graduate degrees, oh, and wow. so uh, it's a very expensive hobby. I have a master's <laughs> in, in electrical engineering, biomedical engineering, um, public administration with an emphasis in budget and finance uh, law, and I have a master's in divinity, uh, which I picked up after I moved here while an attorney. And so, um, in all your spare time, <laughs> yeah, in my spare. Well, actually, um, I had more time on my hands than I would have normally wanted to because when I started out, I, when I, tra I transferred in, I was at, at LSU in Baton Rouge and I transferred into the joint MPA-JD program and which was a misnomer because it's really disjoint and neither wanted to know about the others. All that happens at the end, they would just tell you that, um, they would count a number of credits off each degree and that was it. One semester, I had to convince them that I was a full-time student because I was less than full-time in both schools. I was, you know, a couple credits short of full-time in each, and they said that I was part-time. Uh, and so that was, that was charming. And so, <laughs> but, and, and I had, when I, I had been struggling with my gender identity my entire life, and when I went off to college, I was able to, to finally get access to resources to, to figure this out. Because back when I was growing up, we didn't have an internet. We didn't, all the materials about this were kept in libraries and locked cages where you had to show that you were an adult. And I was, <coughs> I was 17 when I started college. Actually, I just turned 17 when I started my first year in college. And so I went off to college and they didn't card me for anything and all the books were right there. And so I, so I was able to, finally figure out and do an immense amount of study about um, gender identity issues. And so I came out and I struggled with that for the next few years in therapy and with all sorts of other things, trying to get to that point. And I almost transitioned in when I was an undergraduate, when I was a grad student, when I, when I went to, to New Orleans. And then I fell in love with a woman. And this very much confused me, and certainly her. And so I thought I would try being a guy, and that relationship didn't work out. I wound up marrying, falling in love with, a f and marrying a person who now um, identifies as non-binary. We didn't know that at the time, and so now they're the cool one. You know, I would went through all this. I was the cutting edge one back in the day. Now I'm boring. Now I'm gender. Yeah, I'm I'm gender conforming, and yeah. you know all this other stuff. So I'm, and you know they're they're kind of cutting edge, but, and so I had this struggle trying to to deal with my spirituality, my uh, orientation, and my gender identity. And it was a it was a struggle along the way, and I was finally came to understand who I really was and that I needed to do something about it in my last year in law school, and that was not a it was not a fun experience. I was in, like I said I was in Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and 
I was living in New Orleans. Pardon me. My ex and I were living in New Orleans, commuting to uh, commuting to Baton Rouge, and that was a lot like commuting from the Bay Area to Sacramento, mm-hmm. about the same length of time. And you go over a bunch of a stretch of like, like swamp for part of it, yeah. and so. It, when I first moved out here, I kept calling Sacramento Baton Rouge for like the first few years. Uh, I trend. I had gone through my first. We, we had spring break, and I was living with myself at home, and I was living as him at school. So I was living this double life. And after a week of being myself at home, I went and got my ears pierced and went to school and it just it, it's obvious it wasn't going to work so i decided at the end of that week that was it he was gone and so the uh the that saturday i started as myself full time that was april 1st 1989 i did not i wasn't kidding uh <laughs> but and so i we showed up at school i i wore a dress to school on monday and it's really kind of interesting because back then they didn't have they didn't have cell phones or internet or anything like that. But somehow by the end of the first class period, everybody in the building knew. I, I don't know how information traveled that fast, but everybody yeah. knew. And um, What was the climate around that? Did you feel welcome? Well, I no. And one of the things that was really fascinating about it was I expected normally with things, situations like this, to be a group of people who are supportive, a group of people who are opposed, and a group of people in the middle who are indifferent. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was just like no one talked to me again. I was completely frozen out. About maybe two day, a day or two later, um, a couple of the, a couple guys came over to me while I was getting my books out of my locker, and they asked if I was doing it just so I could stay with my ex, who would come out as a lesbian. And I'm like, no, I've been dealing with this for many years. And I'm like, oh, okay, and that was it. That was the last time anybody from my class spoke to me while I was in law school. Wow. And it's really interesting. Every now and then I'll get an email from somebody who will say, I went to law school with you, and I'm really sorry that I wasn't there for you. Wow. Uh, and, and it happens from time to time. And, um, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a, an awkward thing. They would talk to my ex, but not to me. Mm-hmm. And so I would hear the stories about, like, when I would walk in the room, all the guys would cross their legs, like, I'm, like I was going to steal their, their stuff. <laughs> You know, like this was contagious or something, yeah. and it made all the women very, thought it was very amusing. And so, but, and it was, I, I had to use, they didn't want me using either the men's or women's restroom. And so they gave me a key to the Chancellor's private bathroom, and which was really a problem because, I mean, there's one, I was allowed to use one bathroom on ca- campus. Right. Yes. And that was kind of hard. I had to do a lot of planning. And so it was my best semester in law school, grade-wise, yeah. I, because I wasn't hiding things anymore, and I felt comfortable with myself. Let's say on balance, would you do it again? Oh, yeah. Um, I just – what I would have done differently I, is I would have warned the school that I was going to do this rather than just shown up in a dress. Mm. Uh, it was a nice dress, but I mean, <laughs> sure, it, it looked great. My, 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 my ex was really good with women's fashion. And so... Um, did your ex continue to speak to you throughout all this? What? Did your ex, your ex continue oh, we were to together. speak to you? Yeah, so we you were, oh, you we were, were together. together. We, okay. we, we were together. We stayed together um, through my surgery, actually. Okay, okay. We moved out to the Bay Area together. Actually, I moved out here to be with them uh, when they came here to go to seminary at the Pacific School of Religion, where I would eventually go and get a Master's of Divinity, okay. and um, so you had that one person to speak to. Yeah, and 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 her and their family because we lived with their mother and grandmother. Okay, it was an odd family. Uh, anyway, it was very interesting. My family, my my parents were pretty okay, um, and they've always been really. Trying their best, they loved me very. They loved me very. Pardon me. My father loved me because he just passed, and my mother still loves me, and my brother. Well, he's he's my brother, and he still lives with my with my mother. But um, I'm he's he's another story. Uh, but it was. And it was a hardened family. A lot of people in the family were not supportive at first, although now everybody's like super cool. 
but things were different back then. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I applied to take the bar exam in Louisiana, and I was denied because they said I wasn't of sound mind because I was trans. So I've uh, appealed that to the state Supreme Court. I represented myself and won. Um, it was a shame, though, because I didn't feel like I could use that as a writing sample. Right. Um, yeah. But, I mean, because, well, my, my, my law school would have loved it. The people at the placement office told me that I should come out in my cover letters so that people wouldn't be misled about me because I would go out on interview after interview after interview, and the interview would go really well. And then about two, three weeks later, I would call the hiring partner, and the response I got back at least three or four times, almost word for word, exactly this. I've been sitting here trying to figure out how to write the letter. We just don't think you would be a good fit. And so, and that was partly because of the fact that everybody at the school, everybody that I'd ever worked with, uh, all insisted upon outing me to anybody that they could. And so it was really hard. Eventually I got a job when I moved out to the Bay Area and a law firm hired me on the spot without doing a background check. And I did come out to them, and they were, they were never transphobic. Uh, there were, I mean, things didn't work out there, but that was because of business things for the firm rather than because of the firm. The firm, the people at the firm were very nice, uh, although that's a whole awkward story around that. But so when I, and when I came in, I was first in, at this, to this firm. First, I came out as as being lesbian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that I identify as lesbian entirely anymore because I think that that doesn't really honor the full sense of who I am. But um, but I came came out as lesbian, and so I I got the the triple standard speech from the the woman partner. It was a patent firm, and she said, you know, you could be held to a double standard because you're a woman and a triple standard because you're a lesbian. And then I came out as trans, and it was sort of like, well, we didn't even have a talk after that about it. <laughs> the gold just, standard. It was sort of like, you know, I don't even know what standard you're held to now. Right. There was no, there was no just, standard we're, we're for that. We're not going to talk about this anymore. <laughs> there was no special standard at that point. That's sort of like, oh, okay, this is beyond anybody's <laughs> comprehension. And it was something we did not really talk about. Although I had, I, I, my surgery was paid for by my firm's insurance policy. And wow. awesome. all the secretaries came and visited me while I was recovering. It was very nice. Oh, that's cool. The firm was kind of jerky about some other things, like they expected me to bill my full. I had to take unpaid leave, but still had to make the billings for the year as if I'd been working. And I kept trying to explain, well, why should I have to meet that minimum <laughs> if I'm not being paid for all of it? And they said, well, because it's the minimum. But anyway, and I fell three hours short of that. They put me on probation, and I got fired the next year. Uh, because we went through a down. It was sort of. Back then, they didn't. Law firms did not lay people off. They fired people for having low billings because there was no work. What year was this? Dude, that was '93. Okay. And so when I first moved out here, I I did get involved with. Um, I got in. I I joined bailiff right away, and and you can hear all that story that I just gave and more on my bailiff. It's good. It gets better video on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I also. I joined CWL. I joined Queen's Bench, mm-hmm. uh, as well as another woman's bar association in San Francisco. Because at one point there were two of them. Okay, yeah. What? Yes. And so, and I actually went to a CWL a conference like in '92 or something, '91, '92, down in down in Southern California. Went to an annual meeting down there. So I had a long relationship with the with the women's groups now what's interesting though is i lived i lived in on the, in the east bay but i was never in i never practiced law here mm-hmm. i practiced law first in san francisco and then down in on the peninsula as a patent attorney and then eventually back up in san francisco and up in sacramento mm-hmm. and then back in san francisco but i never practiced law in Alameda. The, in Alameda County, I, I I did join Women Lawyers of Alameda County at one point for a little while, and then I fell off, and I think I came back and I fell off, but um, but I didn't really have a connection to folks here. It was one of the things that was a, 
struggle for me when I ran the first time in 2008 for judge was that I didn't have connections in the legal community mm -hmm. here. I'd never practiced here. And most of the work I had done was in federal court, not in state court. And as I did energy regulatory work. I did intellectual property work, all federal stuff, uh, federal um, administrative and uh, litigation kind of work and transactional work. So didn't do a lot that would get me into court down here. And actually not a lot that got me in court to begin with, which is one of the reasons I ran for my seat, because I was a pretty non-traditional candidate. But I had been involved with, with partisan politics here. And I had been approached back in 2007 by some attorneys in San Francisco about the idea of running for judge over there and challenging an incumbent. And I said, I don't want to challenge an incumbent. And I don't live in San Francisco. I never lived in San Francisco. But boy, this idea of being a judge sounds really nice. I was an administrative law judge at that point. I became, an, I had been working as an attorney in Sacramento for the state and taking the Capitol Corridor train up every day, back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, and that commute was, was, was killing me. Yeah. And I've always would wanted to be a judge because I felt I wanted to be in a position that was more neutral. I can be a good advocate, but I always see both sides of everything, and I want to see both sides of everything. And so I thought that that might be a good fit. And so I applied for and got a position as an administrative law judge at the Department of Insurance in San Francisco, and I was there for about a year before I took a permanent. Uh, that was a that was a limited term position. I took a full position at the California Public Utilities Commission where I was for four years as an administrative law judge. And so I was an administrative law judge. I was a neutral. I was a member of the National Association of Women Judges. I was on their administrative judiciary committee. And so I felt like if anybody was going to do this, um, it would be me because I had uh, I had experience as a neutral. I was a trained mediator also. And I was going to ask if you did yeah. mediation. I, I was a tra and I was a trained I actually I went through the 40-hour mediation training twice, once back in the 90s and then another time when I was an administrative law judge at the PUC and I was part of our settlement judge team there. And I looked at this and thought I want to be a judge. I didn't think that the governor would likely appoint me because I didn't have a litigation ex background. And for the, and I didn't come from a traditional background. I was not, uh, I wasn't a former DA or a PD. Uh, neither of those offices were interested in me when I came here, uh, partly because I think that there was sort of a desire for homegrown people, and I'm this weirdo from Louisiana. I tried getting, it was really strange for a while because I was trying to get out of my jo job as a, as at a, at a firm, trying to go like work for nonprofits to make less money, and they're like, "Oh no, you know, we don't know you." But yeah. and and so it's like, "Oh, so you need me to stay here and make more money doing this other stuff?" Okay, <laughs> it just seemed kind of weird to me. But I but I never got to really to to be in court as a litigator in intellectual property. I drafted briefs and wrote briefs and deposed people and deposed people and wrote briefs. And then, you know, the partner would go into court and make the, all the arguments, which is the way it works in these things. I didn't, wasn't, didn't go to a big firm, so I didn't have anybody big polling for me. And so I ran for my seat. And I ran in 2008 and got absolutely stomped. Uh, I had not realized, but uh, Dennis Hayashi was running. His wife was Mary. His wife Mary was in the legislature, and she dropped about a quarter of a million dollars of her campaign money into his campaign. And so it was pretty much at that point, point hopeless. And as soon as that happened, uh, but I I went through the race and laid the foundation for I ran in two thousand ten and won. You and feel better prepared in two thousand ten, having gone through the two thousand eight defeat and realizing how much money you needed. In, well, it, it, it helped in so many ways. I learned how to present my argument. I had retooled everything, and I, I hired the consultant who worked uh, for my opponent. 
good call. Good call, yeah. And then, you know, he has since represented, then, you know, later when Judge Flanagan was running, I referred her to him. And so... We're going to need that name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. Um, <laughs> Off air. But, yes. And so we, but, and, but I, so we, I ran for, so I ran for this, for an open seat. I did not want to challenge an incumbent because I, re I really don't believe in doing that. Yeah. And, and now I, now it sounds like a selfish position because I am an incumbent. But mm -hmm. I, I think that unless somebody is woefully incompetent, but yet somehow not actionable about it, um, otherwise, I don't think that it's right to to because, and I certainly don't think it should be done because a judge makes particular position does particular um, actions. There we have a pro we have a process for challenging a judge if you don't like the one that's been assigned to you, um, you know, peremptory challenges, and so uh, which usually will result in somebody going into an area where they're not going to be challenged out. So I. So, so I was elected in 2010. It was I had I we had we went to a runoff. It was grueling, and I never want to do anything like that again in my life. And then two days after it was announced that I was want, that I had won and I'd be sworn in in January, uh, Anise Parker, the lesbian mayor of Houston, appointed Phyllis Fry to a part-time municipal court judgeship in Houston and swore her in, making her the first openly transgender judge in the United States. And um, you were like, wait, you missed it by two days. And so, and so, but, you know, well, I mean, I had to wait to get sworn in. It's so like really was weird because I have two people who are senior to me uh, in my county bench who were actually named after I was elected. And so, because, you know, the election was in November, Governor Schwarzenegger filled all of the remaining spots in his, that he had available. Right. And then, and then Governor Brown started, uh, the same day, same time I did, and so I've been on the bench now for I'm in my ninth year, and so this was a very unusual route to take. And I am not unlike a lot of my colleagues, not just because of the fact I'm trans, uh, or uh, I was going to say LGBTQ. Although we're having a growing number of us on our local bench, that wasn't the case when I was elected. We had one gay guy who people knew, but he didn't really talk about it, and another gay guy who people knew and they didn't really talk about it, and a lesbian commissioner, and that was it. Mm -hmm. um, now we've got something like seven of us, and so it's... We had the stats when we had Judge we did have, on. Yes, Alameda County is doing very well yeah. over here for diversity. In, yeah. in all... In all all areas, it's, it's we're doing good over here. Yeah, and so, but you know, this is a fairly recent trend. Yes, and so, I was the first one. I was the first out. I would say at that time lesbian, but you know, I probably now would say pan, but now that, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> uh, we won't get into the to the politics of that. And it's been a strange journey. And I was looking at some of the questions that might that, come up today. That, that might come up today. Do some sample questions, and it's like things like about my about having mentors and things like that. There's nobody like me that I whose footsteps I was following in. Yeah. This is why I keep people keep giving me trailblazer awards mm -hmm. uh, because I'm the first one, and that was really challenging. And it was very frustrating. And there really were times I thought about giving everything, giving up on all this. I didn't because I'm too stubborn, stupid, whatever to driven. to to driven. That's that's you right. You call word. it driven. You know, we'll call it uh, tomato, driven. tomato, tomato, tomato. <laughs> uh, to to realize I couldn't make it, so, so I kept trying until I could. And that's what makes you a trailblazer, right? Yeah. That's the definition right there. But are you, if you didn't have a mentor, are you now turning around though and mentoring others? I'm trying to. I've had some unfortunate luck, but in that regard, but I'm not going to go really into that. One of the things I will say though is that I had a lot of people who 
taught me along the way. It taught me about various areas of the law that they were expert in or things like that. I discovered a long time ago that uh, more established attorneys often like to sit and tell war stories and explain about a field, especially to a young woman who's intently interested in listening to what they have to say. And uh, that I learned a lot that way. I learned a lot about subject matter things. I learned a lot about what to do and how to navigate and things like that through the world. Uh, but it's not like any of those are people who are mentors in the sense that they're going to ever get get on the phone and call somebody and say, "Hey, you know, we got, I've got this great person here. You should think about them." That I've never really had. Uh, but I've had other people who are there with me. One of the things that was important to me getting through life was I was having a significant other with me, mm-hmm. and Cynthia, my wife, has been with me off and on now for 25, pushing 25, 24 and a half years. Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. Now, I did leave her a couple of times for varying lengths of time in the early years, but, um, but she has been steadfast and supportive of me, even when we weren't together as a friend. And I couldn't. I wouldn't be where I am without her. I, I really wouldn't. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have gotten through transition without my ex, mm-hmm. who was there with me. It was the. It was the personal people in my life. I had a few people who were there for me no matter what. And also, I realized deep down inside that I could always go home. Mm-hmm. My parents would have taken me in. As a matter of fact. I have a hard time with them. They never wanted me to leave, and they kept asking me to come back. And if I said, I want to move back, I'm sure that they would find a place for me in the basement. And so, You're still back home? You know, in back, New York? Back in New York. So that's – so I had that. And from that personal base of stability, I was able to continue to try and bump my head up against things and do things and try different things. And I've had – a number of different experiences in my life. I've, I went through, I, I am a retired uh, minister in the Metropolitan Community Churches. I studied various things over the years. I've, I've been a journalist, a, a tech writer, an attorney since moving out here. And those things have all helped put come together into the uh, the stew or whatever that makes up me, the casserole that, that makes up uh, of my, my, my life. <laughs> yeah, and as a matter of fact, I, about six years ago, I was named a distinguished alumna from Pacific School of Religion where I got my Master's of Divinity because of the work I do as a judge. And not just because I was trans, but because – and I've, I really think that I learned more about how – to be the kind of judge that I am in seminary than I did in law school. Hmm. I learned how to listen to people. I learned how to hear them and where they're coming from and to think about where they are at in ways that I, you don't get out of a legal um, education. It's kind of funny because another – I was looking the other day and, and another one – another distinguished – alum from PSR, alumna from PSR, and somebody I think you've also done a podcast on, Bacton. which is Diana Bacton, mm-hmm. who's an old friend of mine, and who went to seminary while she was a judge. Yeah. That also makes, likes to collect degrees like you do. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, and there are some of us who are driven into this area because we care about people. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that. So that... I'm not saying that, that I try, you know, I don't proselytize or anything like that. I never talk about it at work. But it informs my being compassionate and listening and patience 
and the various other things that I think are important attributes. And when I was doing work with collaborative courts, which is stuff that I really enjoyed doing, uh, I felt that that was in, in line with that. Uh, my desire to see increased access to justice for people and for alternative forms of punishment that would lead towards rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And restitution, I think that rest, I would always say, you know, restitution and rehabilitation. When I ran, I look back at things I said when I ran over a decade ago the first time, and I was always talking about the same things. Mm -hmm. And those have been the things that have guided me in my part, in, in my various committee work, in my active work, in my prof professional work as a judge since then. It's interesting. This came up when we were speaking to, to, and I always call her Judge Becton because that's what she is for me, but I know she's Dia Becton. Um, <laughs> but prior to going to law school, I actually, I found it really interesting. Uh, I did some religious studies um, mm -hmm. work too. I just found it very closely related to law actually. And mm -hmm. I just, I think that there is something really rela relatable with, um, with both subjects. And so it's interesting that you have also connected those. One of the things I find very surprising in some ways is that, especially in the pro in, in progressive religious traditions, in Christianity and in Judaism, the progressive wings talk a lot about social justice, but never talk about that, don't seem to ever carry that forward into the talking about the actual justice system. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about justice, but those of us who are involved in the system have, you know, needs emotional, spiritual that I don't know that they ever think in term, those sort of terms. And I think part of it because it's become kind of political. But one of the things that's interesting is the, the church that I'm presently a, a part of uh, has a federal judge and another state court judge as members. And so we we kind of have this little judicial branch over there. And so, which um, is kind of wild. Another thing I wanted to circle back to is something that you said earlier, which is that the mentorship and that because you're such a trailblazer um, mm -hmm. that you didn't have anybody professionally that necessarily uh, was a mentor for you, but that your family and your partners mm -hmm. uh, have been your mentor. And I think that's really important to, to think about and to recognize that um, our, our family, you know, it's always important to have that person that grounds you and that you can go home. And we talked about that in the podcast we recorded earlier with Miss um, mm -hmm. Torres, where at the end of a very terrible day, she can go home and she can just say, I need a hug when I get there. Mm -hmm. um, tell me I'm amazing and pour me some wine. Tell me I'm amazing and pour me some wine and give me a hug. And so I think that's something very important that you don't have to have uh, professional mentors that you can have just personal people that mm -hmm. that keep telling you you are amazing and you can keep going and that gives you the chance to to hit your head against the wall as many times as possible and then become elected for to a judgeship and become this amazing person one of the things that has been challenging for me has been that I have a support and see when you're in college. See, I was kind of one of the things I miss about college is that you would have friends who like live in the dorm. You know, you need to talk to somebody. There's usually somebody, friends. so yeah. the people around. And I, every place I've worked before, I've had friends there who I could walk down the hallway and talk to. And I haven't really had that in this role because none of my colleagues are really like me i mean i chat with them but they and we can we we can there's certain things we can grouse about that, we, that nobody else can we can't talk about but uh it's just not the same and i ran a camp i ran two campaigns and have a family that's very active on social media and that's how our family communicates is through social media and i ran two campaigns basically off of facebook 
And then I became a judge, and they said, well, you need to clamp down on that. And it has been a continuing struggle for me because I, first of all, I want to be transparent. I know there's this belief that judge, there's, an, there's this model of being a judge that you're supposed to be, I guess, this, you know, mysterious figure on a cloud or something in the robe. But I'm a person, and I think that people need to know that we're people. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretending that we're not people is, I think, silly. And so I'm myself where I'm, I try to be in myself authentically. And that can get me in trouble from time to time because there have been times where I've said things. I don't talk about politics and I, on, on Facebook or anything like that. I don't even like things that are po- political, and, which is really hard because I had been a leader in the LGBTQ community for decades doing a lot of work for and moving things forward. Now suddenly we're in a time when – I'm not supposed to talk about anything political, but the mere idea of me going to the restroom in a number of states is a political statement. Mm. Um, The fact that I'm married to a woman is a political statement in some places. How do I I exist in a world where my existence is a political statement? But you can't talk about it. My being in this job in some ways is a political statement. both on my part and on the community's part, if only to say that they think that I'm capable of doing this and they don't want to be dissuaded by these other things in my life. I didn't run saying vote for the, vote for a trans person. I ran because I said I've, I think that I'm really well qualified. I'm an administrative law judge with five years' experience doing as a as a as a neutral decision maker and I've been on the, I had been an attorney for 20 something years and so I felt like I brought good experience and some experience that wasn't present on the bench. Was but there was a lot of focus that you were trans during your campaign? It did, no, no, it, but one of the things that's tricky when you run a campaign like this is if you don't say anything about it, you're hiding it. And if you say yeah. something about it, everybody wants to know why you're making such a big deal out of it. Right. So it's a I had, line. So on my campaign website, I had like all these different pages. One of my, one of my basically my my resume. One with my with my professional experience. One about what I hope you know to do. I mean various things about my. And there's one where I made a statement about being openly trans and about how what how important I thought it was for my community to see people like me there, and also how important it was for people in the legal institutions to see people like me in a position like that yes. because when for the most part people saw trans folks as either victims of crimes or as sex workers and mm-hmm. so we were marginalized people and the idea that we were also professionals who could be trusted to make important decisions was a fairly radical one and I thought that it was important for people to see that and to know that uh, that it's okay. And I, so I put one thing like this, and I remember the, the New York Times did a story about my campaign, and they said she has an entire section of her website devoted to transgender issues, and it's like, I just mentioned it because if I didn't mention it, people were going to ask why I didn't. When I you see, I ran for um, a seat on the AC Transit Board of Directors in 1994. That's when I met my wife, and during that campaign, and I did not talk about being trans. I wasn't out about it. I mean, people knew, but I wasn't really open about it because I hadn't done anything particularly related to the trans community, and I was. I, I was getting frustrated with, at that point, there were all these people coming out of the woodwork saying that they were gay and lesbian who nobody had ever known about, nobody in the community had ever seen before. So I didn't talk about being trans, and I got outed during that campaign. And it became this whole issue of why am I not talking about it? What, how much should I talk about it? And how do I talk about it? So when I ran for judge, I had that in my mind mm-hmm. that – if I don't say something about it, somebody's going to try to make a big deal out of it. And by talking about it, uh, I, I moved away from that. What was the things I worked on between my second, first and second campaigns were in my first campaign, I was being portrayed consistently as 
Um, well, Dennis Hayashi was portrayed as a civil rights attorney, and I was a transgender activist. And we made sure that that A word never showed up during my campaign, that we never used it, that we never gave an excuse for it to be used uh, because I wasn't running to be an activist. I am a person who was running for judge who is transgender, has done work on behalf as an advocate for the, trans, for the LGBTQ community. And I continue to do that and I continue to talk about my experiences because it, it's helpful to people but I wasn't doing it because I wanted to be activist, and people were asking me my first campaign, you know, TV reporters, what would you do if a transgender person came in front of you? And it's like the same, same thing, thing I would with anybody else, yeah. you know. So it's, like, the, yeah. it's the same question that came up with, with people about, you know, could, could, could lesbian or gay judges be fair about marriage cases? And remember yeah, you know, I that discussion? I yeah. And so it's like, well, can – can heterosexual people be? Can cis people be? Can, can cisgender people? I'm not using that in any way to be pejorative. I'm just using that I as understand. a neutral term. Yes. I'm just saying this for, the, for people listening. Um, people who are not transgender, they don't, I mean, we don't ask them, are they going to have a problem with dealing with transgender people? As a matter of fact, we're working now to do increased education for people about how to deal with transgender and non-binary people in our in our. Mm system, and I've been working a lot in those sorts of areas, but, uh, and we're working on things like, even simple things like getting the Judicial Council forms yes. changed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I p was part of a working group that came up with some guidelines. That, uh, the judicial system is itself a giant bureaucracy, <laughs> and things are working their way through the system. And I've been working with them, uh, with various people on these kind of issues for years. And it's nice to be able to be there to do that. Yeah. And I, th I think it's really nice to be in a position where folks can look and see that there's somebody like me in a position like that, that I'm not afraid to talk about who I am, but I know and we've been talking about it a lot here, but part of that's been because we've been talking about, I guess, my journey to right. being here. And, and if I don't talk about that, uh, then we don't get the full picture. Right. You don't get the full picture. Now, I mean, part of it is, I mean, I, I found patent prosecution, drafting patent applications to be boring. I'm an extrovert. I don't like sitting in a room drafting and drafting and drafting those sorts of things forever. Mm -hmm. I need to have, like, some human contact. Uh, it's well. I mean, that's why it's it's so strange that you you would want to be a judge. I feel like you're a social butterfly, and I I do also feel like being a judge, from what I understand, because I'm clearly not a judge, mm -hmm. is a little bit of a, a you know, wings are clipped yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I'm and I've been trying to get on the court of appeals, which you know you would think is even more isolating, but it has other charms, like being able to write and to to think through what I'm doing rather than having to deci make decisions on the spur of the moment. I am much better, and I, I, tell, I tell this to attorneys, if you see an issue coming, tell me in advance because I'll do a, you'll get a lot better decision out of me if you t give me a heads up than mm -hmm. having me do it on the spur of the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that. And so... I feel like that's everybody. I feel like well, I think yeah. that's true for everybody too. Yeah. But some people, are, you know, I, I, I like to... I like to think about what I'm going to do before I do it, and that's not an easy thing to do sometimes when you're in trial. I'll so, just put it that yeah, way. Absolutely. And so that's probably the, the thing that I get dinged about as a judge. On the one hand, people say, well, then I'm very open-minded and I listen to everybody. And what they say on the downside is I listen to everybody. <laughs> and and it, that takes a little bit longer <clears throat> because I want to hear everybody's arguments because I don't know – I don't have a predetermined decision on any particular thing that comes in front of me. Because every situation I think is unique, but that's and that's not exactly the best place to be when you're having to deal with a hundred cases in a day. But it does make it so that that the people in front of you feel heard, and isn't that the most important thing? I think it is. You see, this is one of the things that's that's a that's hard as a balance 
from as a judge is that you have to, on the one hand, make sure everybody has been fairly listened to and feels that way. On the other hand, you have to move things through quickly. Mm -hmm. And these two things push at each other, and we all have a different place that we find comfortable along that mm -hmm. continuum. And so, but that is one of the challenges that, that I think any of us would face is like, how do you do that? And, and I think it is important for people to feel that. And to have that, because due process is important. People need to have an opportunity to be heard. And I think if they feel heard, they're more accepting of what your decision is, even if it's against their interests. If they at least feel that they had a fair shake, then they're going to accept it better. For the most part. And Not everyone. There's no, outliers. No, there's always been. <laughs> no, and I've just, one of the things I also learned early on is that um, – that when they disagree with me, the judge is wrong. When they agree with me, they say I was. They say I'm right, and, yeah. not, and, and they don't say the judge was right. They say yeah. you know they were right. And so, you know, it's not always. You don't go into this because you want everybody to love and adore you. Certainly it, not. It, we do not get that sort of warm, fuzzy from people. But what we do get to do is make a big impact in people's lives, and that's important to me. And that's part of why I wanted to do this was because I knew that. And one of the things that was frustrating for me when I was an administrative law judge was I was working on these, these billion-dollar proceedings, uh, massive transmission pipeline, transmission lines going through multiple counties and billion-and-a-half-dollar projects and things like that. But I never saw individual people. Mm -hmm. I never dealt with anything that, that dealt with people one-on-one. -on -one. And so I wanted an opportunity to – get to do that as opposed to just all the time dealing with these big policy related issues which is and um, and, and stuff like that I kind of miss the other one now and so I've, I, it'd be nice if there was some balance in between but uh, and, and you know I was asked when I ran when I first ran for judge actually and then when I the second time I ran for judge the bailiff endorsement committee was kept asking, well, why are you running for judge? Shouldn't you be in the legislature? Shouldn't you be, you know, sh you know, shouldn't I be in an executive office? And I wouldn't turn those down, but I also don't, <laughs> I don't ex exactly see a, see a pipeline to that either. But I think it's also important that we have people, the, the judiciary is our last line of defense. I've been hearing that a lot lately. In, in every society, you'll see that when, um, that when people take over who are oppressive, when tyrants come into power, they either remove or replace or co-opt the, the legal community and the judiciary. And so I think that it's really important that we have people who – I'm not saying that – I'm not taking political positions. I'm following the law, and sometimes it, sometimes it, it – breaks my heart that I'm following the law because sometimes I don't think the law is right. And there have been times I've even written in decisions. I don't think this law is right. But it's the law and you have to mm – -hmm. I don't like throwing people out of their homes. I never did. And I did that a lot as a – I've done that a lot as a judge. But um, it's 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 the, the law and it's the way things are supposed to be set up. But we have to have people who are going to follow it faithfully mm -hmm. and who are not going to just favor – one group of people because they're powerful and influential over another group of people or vice versa because those people des deserve a fair shake too. And so it's having a, a neutral, fair judiciary and a functional legal community is I think essential to maintaining our kind of society to resolving disputes in a reasonable manner without using force or corruption. And I, I, I love it, and I love being part of this. I enjoyed science and engineering stuff. I really did. But I knew that I would never feel like I was making the contribution to society that I should be making because I I mean I, and certainly for me as an as a person who's been through my experience I feel that I am in a lot of ways blessed even though I talk about all the things problems I've had I got here 
I've gotten through to this point. And a lot of, and I did it with a lot of good people helping me along the way. They weren't mentors per se, but they were friends. They were advocates. They were allies. They were people who worked with me on campaigns. They were people who, you know, donated money when I ran, who worked hard to get me to where I am to help me to survive over all these years. Is there something you would want people to know about your experience that they don't often understand? Because you do have such a unique experience. Well, I'm a person, a very sincere, open person. I am pretty much open about who I am, although I don't necessarily share everything about who I am. I'm pretty open about that. I am not trying to force anybody to be anything else. I'm not trying to make people agree with me. I don't want people... I am... I'm a problem solver and I'm a consensus builder. That's, that's what I do. I want us all to be happy. I know that sounds so naive, but you know, I was, I recently watched the uh, Mr. Rogers documentary, mm -hmm. and and I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. Now I was a little old. My my wife wasn't as big into it, but my I had a, a brother who's a year and a half younger than me, and he watched it. I watched it with him. But this is where I came from. The messages of the fact that we are all worthwhile that we're all good people, that we each of us is special, that we should be open and civil to one another. Mm. These are things that are part of my, the way I'm wired. And I wish that people were able to do that more. I remember when I was in law school, my ex who was far to the left, had a friend who was very conservative. And they would sit there and they would just, they would debate. They would just, I, and they would hone their rhetorical ability on each other. <laughs> um, but there was something to that. You learn by listening to other people and talking to them. I realized a long time ago that if I'm not right all the time. It mean, if, if, if nobody's right all the time, it means that nobody's wrong all the time either. And there are times where somebody else is going to be right and I'm wrong. And so I want to keep an open mind. And that can be trouble. That, can be, that, that raises all sorts of other issues. But we've lost this ability in our society to be civil to one another, to to talk to people who we disagree with. And I know there are people who think all sorts of things about me that I don't want to hear. I personally don't want to hear them say it to my face. I don't want them yelling at me, but I know that there are people who kind of accept that I'm a woman. Um, and that's their problem, not mine. Uh, they don't define me. We, I think, we in commun communication and in community with other people define ourselves. And I wrote a, I just rediscovered a, a piece that I had written about that n 18 years ago for the, for the uh, Bay Area Reporter, mm -hmm. uh, for the Pride section about community being a web of relationships and about how we, others don't define us, but we define ourselves in relationship with others. And I still am, that's still where I'm at. It's a shame that we've gotten to this point where everything's become a screaming match, where everything's become hostile, where everything has become existential, whether or not you're a, a, a human being or a decent human being, or even just a human being in some cases. I thought that we had moved so far behind, past that as a society. I have some positions that many of my friends would find horrifying if they knew, and I don't tell them because I'm, I'm a judge now. I'm not supposed to talk about political things. <laughs> but, um, but that doesn't matter. I still can love somebody who disagrees with me. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at somebody like Mr. Rogers, 
he was a Republican, a lifelong Republican, and a Presbyterian minister. And he preached a gospel, in a sense, of love. He taught people to love and respect each other. He was one of the greatest televangelists of all times, in a sense, because he reached out to children, treating children as though they were people, and told them that it was going to be all right, that they were worthwhile, and that um, we should see the humanity and dignity in each other. I, it just always has saddened me that there are people who find that offensive to them. I, I've always found that confusing. I remember about 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, I was reading an article where somebody was talking about my denomination that was in Metropolitan Community Churches preaching about loving everybody and somebody saying that that was ignoring, that, that we had it wrong because we were, we, ignore, we were ignoring God's perfect hate. God's perfect hatred because God hates things that are un, impure and unclean. And I thought, I don't want to be part of that world. I still think that we can love each other and we can grow as a community together, even if we're different, if we have differences, even if we do it different ways. Um, it doesn't mean we have to tolerate everything from each other because you know, anybody who's ever loved somebody else knows it doesn't mean you tolerate everything. And it doesn't Seriously. mean that, if people be, that, that you can't set down rules and boundaries, but that doesn't change how you love people or that you think fundamentally that they're worthwhile. Anyway, so I'm just one. So now you've heard a sermon from me, which is I don't think what you want. We're expecting no, I either. No, I think, I think it's beautiful, and I think it's a great message. So more people need to hear that message that love wins and love will conquer, and that's what we really need to have out there, and not all this hate and rhetoric that you know, you're not human because you think a certain way. And I know it's a weird thing to hear from a judge. I think it's a great thing to hear from a but judge. I th and I think it is. And I think that that's why you'll see that, 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 that a lot of the talks for about civility are coming from people who are who are jurists. People like our chief justice here um, talk about civility. Mm -hmm. um, other judges and justices of the court, federal and state, have talked about the need for civility. Mm -hmm. It's the reason why um, we have the you know, the ends of court group and things like that was to create was to improve civility within the profession. Mm -hmm. This idea that we can respectfully disagree and move on is something that's being lost. A friend of mine posted on Facebook something today that I was looking at that said that the mistake that our society has made is that we, we told everybody that they shouldn't talk, that it wasn't polite to talk about politics and religion, and so instead they know nothing about politics and religion, <laughs> and instead we didn't teach them how to have respectful conversation debates with each other mm -hmm. and that's really because we tr we have always tried to avoid that that's what the whole no politics at, at dinner was about was to avoid arguments we have to learn how to be to respectfully debate one another and we have a system for that in our country we have courts yeah. where we that are designed for us to be able to to respectfully argue our positions on the merits and then for us to to somebody, whether a finder of fact and, of, and or finders of law, to make decisions. And that's how I tie all that together. Make sense? It does. Absolutely. It does. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with yeah, us today. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. I, I know uh, we I, have to get you back on the bench, though. Yeah, I know. I have. Well, I have a little while, but yes. But I know you also can't do this forever either. I would love to do this forever. <laughs> I a lot more questions. Would. We might have you back for a part two yeah, if you're up for you, it. You, really? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I I love talking, um, and I love talking about this stuff, and. I could also have lots of long discussions about all sorts of I, other things other than just me. I mean, I did a little of that. I mean, I, we talked a little bit about collaborative courts and how important they are, but we, I didn't go into the details of that. And that stuff is really important. And how important it is that our courts be, have, be accessible to all people. Mm -hmm. And that's why I work on the Commission on Access to Justice and I uh, 
work um, on the on the advisory committee to the Judicial Council on providing access and fairness is because we're work, we, we care about making sure every person has an opportunity mm-hmm. to have their case heard. And that's that's a, that's a goal and I don't think that's one we've we've realized. Yeah. And so thank you very much for oh, having me here. This is great. Thank Can you so get- much. As always, I want to thank our wonderful guest, Judge Victoria Kolakowski, for being here with us. Thank you to my fabulous co-host, Ariel Brownell-Lee, and to Gilbert Lung, our sound engineer. Until next time.